to Social Evolution. I'm one of your co-hosts, Michael Porcelli. And I'm Max Borders. And we're here to talk about social evolution in the organizational context. Yeah, and I'm really excited to be sitting with you talking about this because you're really the expert in this domain. You're the guy who rolls up his sleeves and gets stuff done in organizations, helping organizational leaders not only build culture, but build internal systems that will allow their companies to scale and really for everybody to kick ass. And I mean, everybody in the company. And we'll get to the reasons why in just a moment. Yeah. And uh, I met Max a few years back after reading his book, The Social Singularity, and I'm working through his new book, After Collapse. And Max is a thinker who likes to put his mind to where we're going as a society. What is the evolution of our social system and our culture and look like uh, in the future and maybe ways it could go really well or ways that it could go off. And so he's him and I have developed this framework for our social evolution conversations here where we've got several dimensions that we look at uh, social evolution through. One is through institutions. One is through culture. One is through technology. And we're, of course, embedded in the natural world, and we are biological species, and we'll touch. We sometimes will touch on those parameters as we go. Uh, but we're just going to take his framework that that he came up with and use that to kind of zoom in and look at human organizations specifically. And I really like this term, organizations, because I think it actually conjures up a lot of different things for different people. I'm kind of curious, Max, when you when you think of this word organizations or our human organizations, like what does that evoke for you? Oh, wow. Okay. I think organization is to organism as economy is to ecosystem. Now, fascinating. Now, a lot of people who run organizations don't see things that way. And I think there's a lot that a lot of people use, continue to this day to use a machine metaphor for the company. Um, but, uh, you know, and try to, to think of it in causal terms that are linear and deterministic. And I like the idea of thinking about an organization as an organism so we can start to see the way the emergent systems can happen, even as, as local a level as the organization. That is cool. I like that metaphor. And I think that's a real potentially carry some really deep insights. So keep that in mind uh, as we as we go, and we will probably revisit that metaphor. Um, I think a, at a simple level, organization, you know, you can think of like community organizing, or you can maybe think of like, I'm organizing my stuff, like, you know, my physical stuff or my, my digital stuff, like, you know, my desktop and my files or you know, sometimes people think of corporations or sometimes people think of other sorts of things mm. like non-governmental organizations or state institutions. Like it's a word that really travels in a lot of different. That's contexts. right. It's it's I mean, when it, if, it, if we were to boil it right down, it's really people doing shit together. Yeah. I mean, at the end of the yeah. day, that's what it is. <laughs> yeah. Um, and yeah. how you do it, how well you do it uh, and uh to, to to what degree you succeed or fail are all questions that relate to the manner of organization but at the end of the day these are efforts by people to get shit done yep and so we're going to focus in on this um i think 
you know, one one place to start, I, I like to at least get a touch into like past, present and future of the time dimension. So maybe let's let's just visit the past really quick. I mean, if we go all the way back to human beings and hunter gatherer existence. And of course, I'm not a professional anthropologist, but I like to pretend like I'm one on this show sometimes. But yeah, like back in the day, people, it was like that group of people, that was your group of people, your tribe, very local. They were the people that you ate with. They were the people that you sang and danced and sat around the campfire, hunted and gathered, and had sex with and raised kids with and got shit done. There really was no distinction really between like an extended family, tribe, organization. Like the, these were not, these were basically undifferentiated in kind of our prehistoric past. And that sort of sets the stage, right? That is the environmental context in which our biology evolved and gave us these tendencies to be what biologists call like very pro social, a very pro social species. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I guess the, the, the porous borders of the clan um, would be much more pronounced or stark when you encounter another clan who's competing for the same resources. Yeah. So we got, we got a lot of organizational change real fast as clan encountered clan. Um, mm -hmm. But, but uh, at the end of the day, the clan, you're right. I mean, it's it's an organization that didn't know it was an organization. There's a continuity even between and among individuals. They didn't even have a real concept of a difference between I and we at the end of the day, or what how we would term the sexual division of labor. It just it just mm -hmm. kind of happened, you know, based on the requisite skills, abilities, uh, you know, strengths, talents. Um, and natural dispositions of people in the clan. And of course, even elderly people who are, you know, no longer able to pull a lot of weight in terms of going out and hunting or going out and gathering were really prized for their wisdom mm -hmm. because they had so much ex more experience than other members of the clan. So there's always a place for everyone in clan society. And it's really interesting to see that and then measure that against how how it looked when people started to scale beyond the level of the clan or beyond Dunbar's number, which is about 150. Yep, totally. So, you know, we're, we're going to just fast forward real quick. In a moment, I, I want to say one final thing here like this, this idea that humans essentially adapted to nearly every ecological niche in the entire world is really grounded in our ability to be socially collaborative, right? You know, there, there, you could, you could even put on a spectrum, like the bees and termites and ants are like, they're called you social or sometimes hyper social species and other species are more individual or, you know, like, but, but humans are sort of the most incredible at creating all kinds of different ways of collaborating, you know, language and all of these social technologies that have existed for hundreds and thousands of years uh, are what have had humans be able to succeed as much as we do. And these, these basic features that we have, you know, sometimes are called uh, like pro-social capacities. Nicholas Christakis in his book Blueprint called it the social suite. We oftentimes think of 
our biology as sort of bringing out the worst in us or like that's our worst tendencies, you know, our the, the killing part or the, the, the jealous part or the what the competitive parts. And it's like, that's true. But actually part of our inheritance as a pro-social species are these kind parts, these cooperative parts. Like we actually have this disposition that that is actually quite incredible when you really think about it, like for getting along and, and working shit out together. It's, it's kind of amazing. Yeah, and I, I, I'm glad we started with this because we really wanted to talk about institutions, culture, and technology. Yep. But you gotta, you almost always in certain contexts have to start with the fact of the human. Yes. The fact of an evolved creature, one who, one who evolved in the Paleolithic steppe or, or in the jungle or in the desert or, or whatever, and realize that Homo sapiens is, is this agglomeration of forces that have been shaped over millions of years, but primarily in clan settings, primarily in as you put it, pro-social groups. So we have all these dispositions. We have all, you know, this, both the bellicosity, uh, uh, you know, the, the, and the, the, the sexual shenanigans of, of humanity, but we also have this, you know, capacity for great compassion, uh, for, for creativity, this generative behavior, um, that, individuals can not only express, but specialize in that allows us at least in the clan setting, slow trade or, um, or what we might call today sharing. Yeah. Uh, uh, what other people, what an economist might call slow sharing or slow trading over time. However you want to look at it though, we, we do care about each other and we understand that the benefit of the one is generally elevated, uh, by the, the empowering of the all. Yep. Now that sometimes get conf gets confused, uh, and it's not to say that that hierarchies are a bad thing, because in the in the Paleolithic past, and we're transitioning to 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 the farming, to the agricultural revolution. All of a sudden, you have settled agriculture. People are sitting still, mm -hmm. and suddenly you needed a powerful chieftain to issue commands so that there is vast coordination at scale just to fight off the enemy. Yep. Right. So all of a sudden we have these flat clans that are consuming resources and then they encounter each other. And that changes the composition of the clan to make it much more hierarchical. Yep. Yep. Totally. And we still see that today. And I'm going to do that fast forwarding move. Like a lot of the organizations that we're in, whether you're in a state based bureaucracy or in a corporation, they have this hierarchical structure. Yeah. It's still the main way that 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 the United, uh, at least companies in the United States and most of the Western world are run. And in fact, no, all over the world, uh, there are very few exceptions to this. And you are one of them with 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 bedrock culture and leadership. I mean, you're really trying to help people make this transition. And we'll get into that in a moment. Yep, totally. So, yeah. So your model, you have we have institution, culture and technology. Let's just call it our model for social evolution. And let's talk a little bit about institution. And when we think of how we organize, these are like the formal structures and documents, the founding documents, like the articles of incorporation, the, the bylaws, you know, what the board of directors 
says it's going to abide by or the procedure that it will use to make its decisions. Uh, oftentimes this has something like a how, how ownership stake is distributed or created. And these can be, you know, investment rounds, cap tables or dilution events or liquidity events, yeah, the, and IPOs and things it's like the this. legalistic uh, aspects of the organiza organization, including who gets to tell whom what to do, <laughs> you know, exactly. <laughs> yes. Yeah, totally. And, you know, a lot, a lot of times we don't really think, especially, you know, people who are just in the workaday world, I'm an employee or something like this, or I'm a contractor. That's usually the extent a lot of people think about it, but entrepreneurs and, and founders really get into thinking about all these different ways you can create businesses. Like there actually are an incredible number of, you might call them entity types that are encoded by the state. Sometimes we will we'll hear one of these as like a number, like a, in the U.S., oh, it's a 501c3. Well, that's a nonprofit, right? Like, But that number is just a number in some legal code that basically says, like, if you want to have an organization of this kind, right, you make sure that you have this certain regulatory conformance and then the state says you're one of those things, right? And we have these, the S corp, the C corp, and a new movement to create things called B corps or benefit corps and LLCs. And, you know, they're. An LLC, in is, an LLC is the one that has the most, most flexibility in terms of, uh, you know, sort of shaping or adapting the rules. At least that's what I hear. You could tell us, you could disabuse us of that that's notion. Right. Yep. But for the most part, the corporate form is pretty much assumes. Uh, the existence of some sort of formalized hierarchy mm -hmm. with a check on power that comes from investors. Yep. Of course, it comes from customers as well, but they're an exogenous force. Endogenous to the organization is is uh, the check on power is not the rank and file; it's the board. That's right. And that's that's the general corporate structure that has persisted since the days of uh, you know the the. Uh, India Tea Company or whatever the hell, you know, back back in the 1500s when they started creating corporations. Uh, yeah. Yep. Well, the, I think the Dutch invented that's it. That's right. That's uh, right. The Dutch, the Dutch East India Company. Yeah. And I think the British were had their own East India Company like not long after that. Uh, but like just to take a, a little detour back in history briefly, it, it's kind of ingenious, right? Like it, it's... You know, whatever that natural cooperative thing that we did as hunter gatherers and kind of, you know, clans, extended clans, it's not like we forgot about that, but it's not like we really formalized it either, except, you know, maybe in these different medieval ways. But the Dutch innovation, this idea of like, it, it kind of came from market economies. Like, let's do a thing where we create essentially what is like a private collective. If you think about it, like that's what a, a corporation is, where it's like where I don't have to assume all the risk and all the reward as an individual. A group of individuals can get together and be like, let's be co-founders of a company. And oh, yeah, let's do this thing in, in, in a private contract together. And it was it was kind of an innovation at the time. It's since become institutionalized at the state level where the state kind of says, hey, you know, you can use our legal jurisdiction essentially as recourse to make sure that these contracts 
are properly enforced. And that's that has to do with the interaction between the state and the market, which is a topic for another time. But this particular idea that that private citizens can essentially pool their resources. We, you can kind of transfer your private assets over to basically a, a, an, a corporal entity that is not an actual person. It's sort of like a pseudo person, yeah. right? It's like a, it's like a fictional it's an agglomeration of people who are charged with making your assets grow. <laughs> I mean, that's right. Yeah. Yeah. And, and, and that's cool because in order to do that, they have to create value, at least, at least in the ideal uh, world of corporations or organizations that you, you want whatever that, that agglomeration of people is to, to grow your wealth. If you're going to invest in them. Yeah. Um, now there's, there's a, there's an interesting distinction I want to make really quickly. And the first corporate forms, as we, as we have mentioned, were hierarchical. Okay. Yeah. Which means that there's someone at the top who's captaining uh, a rank and file to, to, to some hopefully good end mm -hmm. for investors and for the good of the whole group. Mm -hmm. um, but these can form in two different ways. These kind of hier uh, organizational hierarchies, there are stick hierarchies and there are carrot hierarchies. Sure. Stick hierarchies we call governments. <laughs> yeah. Okay. And they really come out of, they really come out of uh, what James C. Scott calls a protection racket. Uh -huh. It's just like a protection racket. There's no different than the mob coming and said, we're here to protect you. You're going to, we're going to come around and collect, collect fees every month to protect you. We're going to make sure that you're okay. Right. It's a nice store you have there. <laughs> It'd be a shame if something happened to it. <laughs> yeah. It's, that's what the Raiders did to the, the farmers uh, in the early days of settled agriculture. They'd come around and collect taxes, which is just a percentage of your yield. Yeah. Uh, and they'd come around so often they'd say, but in exchange, we're going to make sure that none, none of these other brigands does that. Right. And that grew into these sometimes great empires. Now, that's the stick hierarchy. Totally. Then you got the carrot hierarchy. The carrot hierarchy is, hey, we're going to, uh, it, it, we're going to pay you to, to bring about this positive result and, and we're going to let you use our capital to do it. Yeah. Uh, and the incentive system is one based on, uh, well, it's an incentive system, namely that you have, you hope to benefit from that arrangement rather than, uh, the stick arrangement, which is you hope not to have your ass handed to you thrown in jail or dead. <laughs> sure. Sure. Yeah. And even, even within these, you said, you know, generate value does not necessarily mean profit. If it is a for-profit company, it does. But nonprofits can be these organizations that are that exist to create a social value, but not necessarily make returns happen. And this is this is a, the most basic or familiar distinction between two entity types that we're familiar with, right? A, a nonprofit is not itself a state thing, right? But it's not also there to like create profit for its owners, but it is there to provide and create value as a collective group of people who join together. Yeah. To and that value may accrue more to society or to certain groups of people that, uh, whose mandate, you know, their mandate is to help. Yep. But let's, let's, let's make this very clear right now to anybody listening who is under the illusion that nonprofit corporations don't make profits. Okay. Because it's this, it's it's some silliness, okay? 
And, uh, uh, you know, Uh I'm sorry and I don't want to insult my socialist friends, but this is just a fact of reality. Nonprofit organizations have to make revenues in excess of costs in order to survive. Revenues in excess of cost is called profit. What you do with those profits gives you a certain designation as being uh, a profit or nonprofit, but it doesn't mean that you should fail to bring revenues in excess of cost. If you do, your organization will die. That's exactly what that means. And that is a law. That is a law of entrepreneurship or a law of economics that is just undeniable. And that, that goes, that goes for the most socialist, um, you know, communist or communal arrangement you can imagine. If you don't create value or bring in revenue in excess of cost, your organization is likely to fall apart. Totally. And this, you know, will I'll touch back into your metaphor of the organism because this is not uh, any different really than nature, right? It, it, a, a, an organism, whatever it might be, you know, a multicellular organism like a human being or any kind of animal, like it has to bring in more energy than it is burning in order for that organism to live out into the future. And this really just has to do with physics, like entropy is the natural tendency. And in order to have matter and energy stay in a kind of coherent and organized structure or form, like a body or tree, you know, you have to actually accrue more energy within the boundaries of that being than get expended. Otherwise the thing will, will die. Essentially entropy will take over and it will just dissolve back into, you know, from dust to dust, right? It'll just go back this, this way. So, I mean, this, this is a deep principle that you're pointing out. It, in, in fact, it's a, it's a principle of physics. If you b- believe Adrian Bijan. Yeah. Um, and I think we talked about this in a past episode. If yep. we didn't, it bears repeating and I can do it quickly. That is that some system, whether that's an organization or whatever, to live must be able to uh, to reckon with the changes that impinge upon it from without. And what do I mean by reckon with? It must be able to accommodate flows, accommodate channels of flow. So that is to say, there's going mm-hmm. to be energy and information and matter coming into your organization, uh, coming into any system. And we can see the vast vascularization of nature when we look around everywhere you look, whether it's a river system, a transportation system, they're all uh, your your circulatory system in your body. It's all arranged in this vascular pattern. Mm -hmm. And that is how energy and matter and information is diffused through a system. If you don't have that vascularization or your, your system is unable to accommodate flows of flow and change from without, it will die. That's right. And so it's funny when you when we think about like we think about people uh, people like uh you know to complain about the gigantism of the cor- of different corporations and some of them are gigantic by virtue of the fact that they are colluding with governments. I mean the East India Tea Company is a great example of a stick carrot organization, right? But at the end of the day, um gigantism that doesn't happen by virtue of collusion with uh, state power with with sticks mm-hmm. is is usually a a natural phenomenon 
And I say it is as natural a phenomenon as the mahogany trees in the rainforest. They are utterly dominant. They take up most of the water mm. and probably most of the carbon dioxide in competition with other plants and, and animals who need the water or the carbon dioxide, respectively. But the mahogany trees of the rainforest, we know, provide tremendous benefit in the ecosystem. And the, that is another expression of the vascular nature of nature. <laughs> <laughs> totally. You know, we have to be careful when we talk about, uh, you know, make an aesthetic claim about gigantism with corporations, um, particularly as corporations, most of them can't scale beyond a, a certain point and they have scaling limits uh, that are features of formalized hierarchies. And we could talk about that later. Yeah. This, this idea of, of scaling. I mean, you were really going into more dynamics of ecosystems and, and economy, economic systems, which is, it's totally cool. It's, it's relevant. I mean, this is the, the environment in which our organizations exist. And, you know, you, you kind of get, this something like a hierarchical pattern naturally emerges. I mean, you can, you, you said vascularization and you, you think about the blood vessels in your body, right? There's sort of a very small number of really, really big blood vessels mm -hmm. like the aorta, right? And there's like millions of tiny little blood vessels that are very, very small. And like this pattern of like the branching tree structure, right? This is, it, it's everywhere. Yes. And it is intrinsic to scaling. And then you get the, a similar thing if you look at the whole economy itself, right? You get a sort of small number of really big institutions, right? And a whole vast number of very small ones in a kind of a, a churn, like almost like in a power law distribution. That's right. And it's funny. It's almost like if you think of the, the wider ecosystem in which corporations operate or whatever, you'll, you'll get... Uh, Forgive me this this little this little story this little vignette, but you'll get the the brooks in the streams high up in the mountain mountains shaking their fist at the raging river, <laughs> you know, saying you've got too much of the water. But they're both a feature of the natural <laughs> environment that is absolutely inescapable at some level. Yep. You know, and and so when we, it's almost like um, the the this because we evolved in clans and we were, we're sharing species, there's a deep egalitarian instinct mm -hmm. at sub Dunbar uh, in sub Dunbar situations like clans, because we evolved in millions of years of that. We don't like people who quote unquote hoard wealth, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. but stewardship of capital is a very different thing from hoarding wealth. And if you talk about the richest guy in the world, Jeff Bezos. Yeah. I mean, in terms of the assets of Amazon, they're massive, but really those that's capital being deployed to create a vascular system that just pumps out goods, goods uh, to everybody in the, in the United States, certainly and in, in most of the world. So let, let's talk a little bit about um, let's make a transition in a minute to culture and technology, but it, it bears sticking a while on this institutional idea. Like one way of thinking of it is it's, it is like a decision-making authority it's almost like a political thing really like because you know political in the sense of not partisan politics but just in terms of power yeah and decision making authority and like how is it distributed and if you know you look at these you know the the, the founders the investors they get together and they essentially in a traditional organization appoint a person and they say okay cool 
we're just gonna delegate to the CEO all the authority for making the decisions about how this is, how our capital is deployed and et cetera and so forth. And then it, you know, we can fire you and replace you with another CEO if we want, but cool, here you go. And then the CEO goes, all right, I will kind of take all of this authority that is placed in me as like the top dog here. And it's a carrot dictator almost. <laughs> I'll, I'll parse it out. Yeah. I'll parse out the authority, right? I'll be like, okay, look, you know, the, this, my financial officer will have this authority. My operations officer will have that authority. And like a, you know, a, a good CEO, the way that we construe good CEOs, they, they do really well at delegating and respecting their lieutenants and, you know, not micromanaging, right? Like, and being able to just look at things from, you know, a really high level and, and trusting expertise within the organizations to do that. And then the authority kind of cascades down in that same way as a hierarchy. And, you know, we, we can see these kinds of hierarchies in other kinds of organizations like military. church hierarchies in the Catholic church mm -hmm. or military. Yep. Yep. But, but it's, it's a similar kind of a thing. It's sort of like a hierarchical delegation of authority. Uh, and, you know, we could just like, be like, yeah, and that's natural, right? We just did this whole argument about ecosystems and species and cool. That's just the natural yes way, no, right, bro? Right? Yes like, and I mean, no. <laughs> it's, a, it's, a, it's a tough question. I, 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 I see where you're going with that. And it's like, look, formalized hierarchies are, are set up in, the, in a manner that would allow an executive or a chieftain or whatever to make swift decisions for coordinated action. Yep. There is a and it bears bringing up Ronald Coase now, I think, uh, because Ronald Coase yes. really wondered. He was like, wow, markets are magnificent. People trade and exchange and do all these wonderful things voluntarily. Why would why do we have a, a system in which people set up little mini dictatorships, little mini hierarchies, like corporations? <laughs> They're corporations. Yeah. They're like, yeah, it's like, like we're, we're all about free markets. We're all about uh, free people. And then we set up these little fiefdoms, these little uh, corporate hierarchies. Uh, yeah. And the reason we do that is according to Coase transaction costs. Right. Yeah. As, and that is in 1930, which is, uh, I think when he first wrote uh, the theory of the firm, he said, look, we do it because it costs less to pay people. And again, this is the carrot, not the stick. Um, it costs less to pay people to come to work every day and take orders from a management hierarchy than it does to try to have something self-organize for, for a certain mission or objective, which is one side of it is profitability. Mm -hmm. The other side of it is uh, putting shoes on feet or... Uh, Making cool headphones that uh, Michael Porcelli and others can wear during their podcasts. Whatever it is that corporate mission is. Yes. Um, you know, the one side of it is the purpose. The other side of it is profit. Those are two sides of the same coin. And so the idea was, you know, you have to have a general. You have to have a master in commanda to, to get the rank and file to coordinate at scale. And the cost of doing otherwise would have been felt immediately because you can't self-organize easily. In 1930. Yes. But here's the weird thing. The institutions 
well, I'm skipping ahead. Don't get mad at me. That the institutions are going to change, and I won't tell <laughs> you why yet. But but for some reason, the costs of organizing people differently is going down. Yes. So Coase continues to be right, but and he would have admitted is like if you can bring those costs down, what do you think, Ronald? Will we so organize into hierarchical firms? He'd be like, nope. So there's a couple of different things getting mixed together here, which I like. Like, I think whether we're talking about like a hierarchy of people versus a hierarchy of work, I think it bears yeah. talking about, which kind of will bridge us into discussing holacracy. Cause I, I don't think we can get out of that natural construct, the tree construct, the vascular construct that that'll never go away. So let's, let's make a very clear dis uh, distinction here for the listener. Mm -hmm. And that is, and, and you are the expert on this. So you correct me if I'm wrong. Okay. Yeah. Uh, but you might call them formal hierarchies versus competence hierarchies or hierarchies, uh, pra practical hierarchies. Mm -hmm. This vascularization of the firm is going to happen even in alternative forms that don't formalize their hierarchies. You're still going to get certain kinds of decisions being made uh, that might look more like the mahogany tree than the termite. Yeah. Yeah. The way that I think about it is uh, functional. Functional hierarchy. The functional hierarchy will continue to exist. And what's interesting is, you know, if you if you look at it from this point of view, we've essentially let a, a hierarchy of people be almost like a heuristic for a functional hierarchy. Yes. Right. We, we just say, oh, these people kind of like are delegating authority to each other. And then the function of the company is sort of mapping in a in a hierarchical way over to these people mm -hmm. but you can under certain constructs and, and holacracy is the the key one that i know of you can separate away the functional hierarchy from the hierarchy of the people and you the the company as a as an entity needs this hierarchical construction because of this natural tendency of organizing matter and energy that we talked about kind of about that physics level but it doesn't necessarily need to mean that there's like a hierarchy of people that sort of like get to decide everything sort of like at their level in the hierarchy and downwards right it sort of rolls up into them as a person it's actually sort of separating the person away from it and putting it into what's called a role in holacracy okay okay wait a minute now we've got people listening who don't know what holacracy is. They're going, wait, wait, they're scrambling. They're making notes. They're Googling. Help them uh, continue Googling folks. But, but, but Porch, please give us a little bit more about holacracy and try to do it in a quick and dirty way. But you're, you're a, an expert in holacracy. Yep. I've been trained in it, but I've never been a practitioner to speak of. So, so give us the quick and dirty on holacracy. Simple way. It's a wholesale replacement for the traditional management hierarchy. It's a different way of accomplishing basically the same thing, which is how do we organize our work together Yeah, to, to serve a certain purpose or to provide a certain value or value proposition for the broader marketplace or economy or what have you. That's it. So you're going to get this vascularized organism that we call an organization Yep. anyway, but how do we get there? We don't get there by deciding it ex ante. Yep. Somehow it, bobble, it bubbles up from the bottom in a more natural fashion. Tell us about that. How does that work? Well, one way 
is by formally separating the idea of people from job function. So if you look at the way a traditional management hierarchy works, it, it does a number of different things simultaneously. One is that it kind of creates a sort of dominion, right? Like a, like the, I'm the boss of this part or this area, like a little, almost like a feudal thing. <laughs> I'm the Lord of this area, right? Uh, and the decision-making authority that goes with that. It's like property rights or decision rights. Yeah, yeah. Property rights or decision rights. Okay, I'm, I'm tracking. The other thing that it does, though, is it does, it, it kind of, it's like, um, it's like an achievement ladder, right? Like, oh, I'm, I'm earning a badge. And it's sort of like, isn't it when I like reach a certain level of competence that I'm supposed to automatically go up a level, right? So it's like, that's a slightly different thing because that's more about me as a person, as an individual contributor, achieving higher degrees of competence, right? Like it doesn't necessarily mean just because I get a higher degree of competence that I should suddenly be in charge of a larger part of the thing, right? But a weird way, a weird way, the management hierarchy sort of like conflates these things yes. together. Yes. So do you, do you see what I'm saying? Mm -hmm. Yeah. So, so instead what we do is we just say like, look, let the, let the organization itself have a, a, a hierarchical structure. It's just, we don't one for one put people at the place of the organizational parts at, in that same location in the hierarchy. We say, look, you can be in different places in the hierarchy, depending on what your competency actually is and what your interests actually are. And this, this actually allows, cause, cause if you, if you compact all these things together, you sort of get, and people who are in corporations are very familiar with organizational politics, right? Mm -hmm. There's essentially this extra shit that happens. It's like who knows who, or who's doing favors for who, or who's brown nosing better, or who's just slicker at like, you know, like whatever. Who's deferential and docile? Who's who's accused of being type A? Who's yes? Who's issuing commands and who's taking? Are they? Are you deferential? Are you? You know, uh, there's so much backbiting and and other kind of. It, it really can create a zero sum environment. Buck passing is another one. It's like, oh, that's not my job. Yes. Talk to my manager, right? Yes. So it 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 uh, when you have this sort of this delegation of tasks that are being restricted, restrict the range of what you can do in a formalized way. Yeah. It almost gives people an excuse not to take responsibility for the output of their circle or their whole line. Yeah. Which is more about the function of the organization, just like the liver cells or the renal cells or the function of the, the kidneys. Right. Yeah. Uh, if you belong to a circle of the organization that is marketing or accounting, you're responsible for making sure that organ does its job. Yep. Is that is that sort of and and for adjusting and changing with respect to the external environment? Yes. Whatever that might be, even if that's other functions of the organizations or the exterior. Yeah. Yeah. I think there's a there's a couple of things kind of being all mixed in here together. We're sort of like looking at the old way and we're saying, like, here's the way the old way sucks, and we're oh, here's what the new way is supposed to be, and here's the way that a hierarchical uh, structure of people like your org chart can actually interfere with the proper functioning of the, the hierarchy, which actually this brings us back around to coasts for a minute. As I said, there was like two different parts of this conversation just a few minutes ago. And this is this idea that like, 
well, why do we glom together corporations to begin with if the free market is so great, right? And it's like, well, this transaction cost idea. If everyone had to negotiate every exchange or every decision as like a free and independent part, like you'd have a lot of overhead that gets generated, right? But if you can like top down say, look, it, here's just the standard way we do things and everybody just does that, right? Or like we're going <laughs> to, we're going to force certain economic exchanges to happen rather than let like this manager and this manager like negotiate some fair market price for their exchanging services across the organization. We're just saying, nope, you're just doing it. You're just going to transfer that value across the hierarchy because we're telling you to, right? Like, and, and, and we're paying you to let us tell exactly. you. Exactly. Yeah. 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 Totally. Which is still a deal. It's, it's still a carrot phenomenon. Yes. It's just a, it's just a, a, a kludgy carrot phenomenon. It, 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 it addresses the issue of transaction costs. Yes. And economically, the, at least the, the assumption, the working assumption here is whatever excess capital is required to like force that coordination to happen or incentivize that coordination to happen. It's still more efficient than the kind of like just open market equivalent. And you could potentially debate that in certain cases. And we could talk about institutional or bureaucratic decay, but let's just sort of say baseline. That's why the corporations form to begin with. And so we have this cool thing of almost, it's almost like the idealized form of the management hierarchy is supposed to be really efficient, right? We could, we could turn on a dime or, you know, the, the commander in chief says, we're going this way now. And everyone goes, all right, we're going that way. Now they're paying me to follow, right? Like I'm, I'm in. Yeah. Yeah. But the reality of organizational life is that this hierarchical thing itself has its own inefficiencies. And actually over time, it tends to accrue these kinds of inefficiencies, bureaucratic red tape or internal infighting or just political things. You know, people who are the, you have two different things. You have, you have kind of like the, the type A people who want to like, aggregate more power. And then you have the buck passing people who are just kind of like, uh, don't, I don't, I, you know, this is above my pay grade. I want somebody else to make this decision. Right. And you, you have all these things all mixed in that create another kind of inefficiency, which sort of pushes against the efficiency gains that coast points out. Yes. <laughs> Especially when you try to scale yes. it. Um, but okay. So, but I, you know, knowing what I know about holacracy, um, which is one form of self-management of self-organizing, creating protocols for self-organization within a firm. Yes. And this is really the, the interesting part. And we, we, I keep going back to the biological metaphor because I think it's fruitful. Mm -hmm. um, and in, in organisms, and we said, or at least I said, and you, I thought agreed that the organism is, is, is comparable to the organization. Yes. Organizations have an executive function, mm -hmm. right? Either the mission is the boss or there needs to be some mechanism. The mission is the boss. But sometimes the organization needs to change. There needs to be an executive function. Mm -hmm. There needs to be a way for, just like in a, a human body, you've got a brain and an executive function in the brain that tells the body, okay, uh, go sit down over here and drink a cup of coffee and and have fun talking to Porcelli on a Friday, yes. right? Uh, and And that is presumably got to happen within an organism that is a firm. We see how that happens with formal hierarchies as a CEO and a management team whose job it is to be, as it were, the brains. Mm -hmm. 
of the operation. We even have a term for that. They're the brains of the operation, mm-hmm. right? Yep. What about in holacracy? How do you turn on a dime? How do you how do you respond without? Do you do you have executive uh, some sort of executive function in holocratic organizations? Yeah, yeah. So you know, I I, I don't want to dwell fully on a deep dive into like what holacracy is or people who can explain it even better than I can. And holacracy one is the place for all that information, and it it bears using it as an extended example because it's so cool. So. Yes, that coordination, what you're talking about as an executive function, I think of as a coordination function, right? Like, or an integrative function. There's a way that the efforts of all of the humans involved in the delivering the value of the organization need to align so that the organization does what it's meant to do. And so there still needs to be roles that have certain authorities and this is where we kind of come back to our framework here. What do we mean by the institution? These are the official rules of the game in terms of how we coordinate our action together. And it just so happens that holacracy provides a different set of rules that accomplish the same thing. And the, the argument or the, the sales pitch is that it accomplishes the same thing better by some definition of better. And there's actually sort of debate even within the holacracy community as like, what do we mean by it's better? You know, like, are we actually saying that it's better? Is it, is it better for the individuals? Is it actually better because it creates efficiency for the organization or is it better because it creates adaptability for the organization? You know, I think the, the jury is out. Uh, Brian Robertson, who's the guy who came up with uh, holacracy to begin with would say yes, yes, yes to all those things. (laughs) Probably. He probably would say yes to all those things. Uh, now, now there are people who debate him on yes. this, and and I encourage our listeners to go and and go down the rabbit hole of some of those debates. But at the end of the day, uh, Porch, you're a practitioner of holacracy. You like it. You think it's preferable to a management hierarchy. Would you say just uh, yes or no to that? Uh, I th- I have a qu- an open question on simply the organizational efficiency of it. Okay. Like, you know, I think some, there are some efficiency gains and there's potentially other efficiency losses. Like it's, it's unclear to me, but it still has the coordination feature in it. So you're saying the jury might still be out in certain contexts. Is that what I'm hearing? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think it has yet to have like long-term studies or metrics done on it. I mean, one, one way of saying it is it attracts a certain kind of worker. Like there are some people and this is getting a little bit potentially into other dimensions, like the cultural dimension of organizational life. Some people sort of want to be told what to do, right? They, maybe they were just raised. That's exactly right. Raised in a traditional kind of culture, society, church or whatever. And they, they, I think it's inborn too. Sure. Sure. I think, I think, I think mother nature is loading the dice in human populations and saying, Okay, you're gonna follow rule. Uh, you're gonna follow leaders, and others are saying you're gonna lead. And we are disposed in that way as a human population. It seems plausible that there's some genetic factors here for yeah. things like you know conformity versus nonconformity, or something like this, and, and a range mm-hmm. there. But whether it's genetic or well, I, I, it, might, it might just be like I don't want to have to think about all yeah. that stuff. Like the kind of decision fatigue that these CEOs must have is just enormous. The pressure, all that shit. I just want to come to. I just want to come to work every day. 
be told what to do, do it, do it well, get my paycheck, go home. And I don't have to think about it anymore. In fact, I can go to sleep. But the CEO isn't going to sleep. He's staying up all night. She's staying up all night worrying about her corporation and its survival from day to day or quarter to quarter if you're a public corporation. Yep. Right. So so a lot of people are just like, yep, I'm not interested in that. I, I don't have the entrepreneurial zeal to deal with that level of pressure. And so I'm just going to follow rules. And that is perfectly appropriate. Or if you like the language better. Sure than a holocratic organization that distributes authority and decision-making powder power among multiple parties in the organization. Yeah. yeah, totally. Yeah. And, you know, I think there's a, there's a sweet spot for everybody. You know, I think, you know, nobody really wants to be a slave and very few people want to be servants, right? Like, so to some degree, people want to be, feel like I'm in a, in some amount of control over my own destiny. But the truth is a lot of people, especially people, that take up employment. I want to be an employee, right? They're willing to trade. Like I want, um, give me the benefit package, right? Give me the perks. Give me the, the, the reliable security of a regular income. And I will give up yeah. a lot of control and authority over what I do. You know, I, I worked as an engineer at Hewlett Packard for a while and, you know, I loved it in a lot of ways, but it was kind of funny. Cause you know, it's like, okay, we're going to do the next product. And it was like, all right, here we go. And now we're trying to make this thing work. I'm like, but what's funny was it was a couple of years prior to even me starting to work on that product that some marketing research part of the company just decided what that product was going to be. And they just sort of handed it over to engineering and saying, now you're going to build that. And I'm like, why are we building this? And they're like, we already did whatever the market research, blah, 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 blah. You know, essentially it's like, oh, so we're just here to make that work. It's like, yeah. So I get, you know, within my code, I get to decide, you know, how I want to do my code. But there's sort of like what the heck the product is doing or what the product even is totally above my pay grade. Right. And yeah, yeah. no creative control over that level at all. And it's fine for people who love doing they want that security and reliability and that idea that like, you know, it's above my pay grade. I don't want the stress of these larger level decisions where, you know. If a project gets canceled, right, it's somebody else's ass, right? Like, it's kind of like, uh, yeah, okay, they just decided to make the wrong product. You know, and the engineers are just sort of like, okay, engineers, you're done with that one. We're going to sick you on another one. And you're just like, cool, we're just going to go do that one now, right? It, it's sort of, it doesn't matter to us as engineers. Well, and there, 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 you know, there are also, you might call them benevolent hierarchs who are the opposite of this, right? So you're going to have a Steve Jobs. Mm-hmm. You're going to have an Elon Musk. You're going to have one of these visionary entrepreneurs who really sees, they, they see what they want to have happen. Mm-hmm. You know, they, they, they think strategically out many, many steps and they want to see that instantiated. So they're constantly uh, using sticks, carrots and otherwise and rule sets and anything they can basically to instantiate what they've got in their minds. And I think this is, you know, w- when a company is in its nascency, that, that is ripe for hierarchy. Someone who is being entrusted with investment capital, who is a visionary, who wants to instantiate something, mm-hmm. you know, at the, at, the, at the early days of the company, you know, it might make sense for that to be a hierarchical state of affairs. It might happen more quickly. You know, they might get to market more quickly. It's just when they start to scale that maybe transferring or t- translating into something like holacracy might work. But 
there again, someone like a Brian Robertson might be like that, 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 you don't, you know, that being a good leader in that regard might be more about figuring out how to, to create a mission that people can buy into and instantiate without you having to make that, that level of decision-making authority, or at least this part of it, the strategic and the visionary part is circumscribed in one circle, mm -hmm. which Holacracy calls it circles mm -hmm. or holons. Mm -hmm. um, and that can happen too, by virtue of holocratic organizations processes, but it might not. And that a visionary entrepreneur that might not part, some visionary entrepreneurs might not like. Yeah. Yeah. So, so in, in any case, whether it's something fancy and experimental or novel like holacracy or a traditional one, there is the rules of the game and how they're done. And there's a certain, I would say kind of design trade-offs here in terms of doing that. Like in the end, like we said, because of entropy for the organization to exist, it has to basically provide enough value that it kind of can accrue, you know, meet its costs and then some to reinvest in its continuation. Uh, what one one way of seeing this difference is, you know, if the executive function is really rolled up to the CEO or the visionary leader in a more traditional management hierarchy, it's actually more smeared out, right? It's like it's like um, the the idea in holacracy is is there's like lo local reorganization that is allowed. So that kind of reorg thing that like, you know, upper management does periodically in a traditional organization is more done in a perpetual state. Um, you know, not, not like all the time, all day long, every day, but it's sort of like anyone who needs to like modify how the authorities are distributed and how the work is coordinated can bring that to a process called the governance process and, and modify it. So you, you kind of, you know, instead of passing the buck, I don't want to do make decisions at that level. You're kind of going like, oh, I can. If, if I think it should be changed in this way, I can go kind of change it. And then that attracts a certain personality type. It actually sort of either requires or it engenders a certain kind of culture. And I want to make this move to culture here because people need to really in to succeed in an holacracy style organization need to really be individually self-initiated, kind of almost like an entrepreneurial uh, style within a group organization. And, di and different cultures do different things. Organizational cultures are, in a sense, connected to the institutional rule framework and either support it or go counter to it. That's really what I wanted to, 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 to point out before the transition. And, and let it be the transition. Yes. Is that the interplay between culture and institutions is so profound. Yes. Okay. You'll notice that formal institutions are constantly talking about organizational culture. They usually try to inculcate it from the top down. It's like, well, these are our corporate values. This is the HP way or yes, whatever. Yes. Right. Um, and, and you'll, you'll get this, these sort of mindless drones sort of reciting, memorizing, reciting the corporate values. And it's really hard to keep it constantly, keep it in place, uh, ex except, you know, colleagues reminding each other, remember, this is the HP way or whatever. Yeah. But, you know, the, at the, on the other hand, with the institution set up in a different way, the culture actually can emerge 
and be pro-social without being inculcated. And that's a different shift. And let, and let me just touch on one more thing before we move on to culture. For example, this idea of processing tensions in holacracy. Mm-hmm. What people often do in the traditional formal hierarchical firm is avoid problems, right? They don't, they, if like, if it's not my job to confront this problem, I, I don't want to have anything to do with it. It's not, it's, it's, it's out of my purview. It's not part of my tasks. It's my manager's fault. That's the, that's the responsibility of, of, of the, the, the rank and file, the leadership, not the rank and file. And so you'll, you'll, you'll get these, um, how should we say problems or things that are just not quite right. And what culturally by, by virtue of the rules that holacracy, the protocols of holacracy brings to bear in a firm is to say, we are going to confront tensions head on. Yeah. We are a problem solving organism. And that is really fucking cool. That is the biggest difference between uh, holacracy and formal organizations, I think, sometimes, is that the problem-solving set happens very centralized and at the top. With holacracy, it happens everywhere and for everyone. And you have a positive responsibility to bring up tensions in order to help the organization evolve in the face of what is essentially an evolutionary fitness landscape that might kill it at any moment by virtue of a competitor or whatever. Yeah. And, and that idea is, you know, that's the ideal version of it. And if you have a, a, a legal construct, you know, or a, or a, or a, or a authority construct like the holacracy constitution that supports it, then these things are synergistic with each other, right? Like the, the culture of like taking, you know, some companies say like, we want our employees to have a sense of ownership, right? But they're just employees and they're not actually owners. There's like a little bit of a, almost like a phoniness to that sort of a top-down culture culture messaging. But like, like, let's take a step back and think about, you know, such back at least what we said in our initial episode about culture, right? It's, this, it's just all this implicit stuff. It's the water that we're swimming in. It's the stuff we pick up by osmosis and we pe- repeat it back. And I, I like this... um metaphor of the Ouija board, you know, like you know, everyone's got their fingers on the Ouija board, like the whole group sitting around the table, but where that Ouija board goes is kind of an emergent property of what we're all doing. Right. So culture isn't, I think it's a, it's a, it's a common executive sort of whatever you want to call it, <laughs> consulting idea like that you can make things happen by making the culture be a certain way. And I think that is in some very real sense, a false idea. You can attempt to impose culture from the top down and you can have some degrees of success at that, but it's limited. And whoever the personalities of the founders are will definitely influence the culture quite a bit sometimes in ways that they don't like it. Like there's like kind of the hypocrisy of the executives sometimes where they're sort of like, we want this to be a culture like this, but then they, their behaviors are sort of like not aligned with it. And then people go, well, I suppose the culture here is like hypocrisy, right? That's sort of what the Ouija well, board. Well, it's also the formal rules. The form, they run right up against the formal yes. rules. Yes. It's like, if there is really, um, if there's really a command and control system in place that's formalized, yep 
that this is what the org, org chart looks like. This is how decisions are made and tasks are distributed. Don't try to don't try to bullshit me by imposing a culture on top of that because it's never going to happen. The rules in this case are stronger, far stronger than the culture. Yeah. Until until you to have people leave. Yeah. Well, this is this gets the interactions between these things. You know, Peter Drucker had this famous quote of like culture eats strategy for breakfast. And I think what he was trying to convey there is, you know, you can you can get your executive team together and say, like, this is the strategy for the next 12 months or year, blah, blah, blah. And this is what we're going to do. But the culture itself is going to kind of. Whatever it's bigger, right? It's thicker. It's heavier in a way. You can say what you want about where you want strategy to go, but the culture of the company is really going to kind of go a bit where it wants to. I mean, there's still the goals of the company. It doesn't get to dictate what the goals of the company are, but but ultimately strategies don't totally get followed because of this idea. But then somebody else said, well, system eats culture for lunch or something like this. Like, <laughs> and this is one that Brian Robertson likes to quote where I think it's kind of true where the, the economic incentives or, or the, or the political incentives of like what the actual rules of the game are like those things shape us, what, whatever the heck we say our culture is. And, and like, there is a dynamic tension. That's the, that's the tension right there between institution and culture, right? Like there's, there's a way that, they have to be mutually supportive to some degree. Otherwise the thing is going to fly apart. Uh, and, but there are better and worse ways for them to be aligned. Right. And when, when, when executives say something like, well, we're going to like make this a culture of blah, 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 blah. You know, they're listening to Drucker. Yeah. Culture eats strategy for breakfast. So let's have a healthy culture. Right. And then they try to impose culture. They're just sort of <laughs> repeating the same problem in a, they're just calling it something different. Right. Like, yeah. But you can also do a thing where you're just like, well, let's just set up the rules of the game, like the institution. Here's the rules and here's how it works. And let's just let culture be whatever it is. Right. Like we're not going to pay any attention to it. But that also has problems and issues of its own as well. Well, it, to a degree, to a degree. And, and, and I want you to talk about this in just a moment in light of meta relating, which is what is your a particular brand of helping people function interpersonally uh, in in firms because there is so many human dynamics in this in the as it were the social technological stack yeah. of the organization and one of them is the interpersonal dynamics human beings have one to the other. Yes, but if in an organization in a holocratic organization the basic rule is essentially I have to approach other colleagues with humility and ask for assistance. Mm -hmm. And there is an expectation on the part of the holocratic organization that the person who's being asked of this uh, do their very best to help this person out if they can, but otherwise they can refuse. Yeah. Then what kind of culture is going to emerge from that? It's probably one of respect and humility. And in if if the formal hierarchy of the of a the alternative firm, the legacy firm is the way you get people to ask for help is to be a manager and tell a subordinate to f go fucking do it. Yeah. That is a very different rule from which culture can emerge. And indeed there are a there is a, a vacillating tandem, a dynamic of back and forth between culture and institutions yes. that after a while they start to really support each other. And it's almost like, 
in a hierarchical firm, you could get this culture of assholery that continues to corrupt uh, or shape the institutional substrate. Yes. And likewise, in holacracy, you can see, see a lot of really good emer emergent cultural norms based on this idea that you can't tell anybody what to fucking do. And yet the mission is the boss. Yes. So we got to get this stuff done because the mission says so, but not you. So how do you how do you interrelate to people? OK, but it might not be enough because some people just aren't naturally all that good at interacting with each other. They might be coming from a company that was organized this way and are used to say, hey, I'm going to need you to uh, like office space. You know? Sure. <laughs> right. Or whatever. Yeah. Or, or be a type A personality or what. So. Can you tell us a little bit about meta-relating as a part of the tech stack of an organization? Yeah, yeah, this is this is great. Thanks for thanks for bringing it here. So, meta-relating I developed with my my colleague Josh. That's Josh Zemmel, right? Josh Zemmel, yeah. Uh, as a kind of a an answer to well, what we think good healthy communication practices look like. Uh, for organizations. And, uh, you know, in one way, you could say, you know, we, Holacracy handles a lot of this stuff. We actually use both Holacracy and Meta Relating on ourselves at our firm. And uh, you could say, look, well, you know, when it comes to deciding who gets what authority over what part of the whatever pr processes and assets of the company, that's where we go to for holacracy and that's what we go to holacracy for but there's still kind of the human to human dimension right you know there's there's kind of like how we are with each other or how we feel around each other this is sort of more informal right this is tone of voice or body language or these kind of you know background cultural things that are may or may not really be necessarily all that relevant to the mission per se, or if they are related to the mission of the company, it's only indirectly, right? It's kind of like, well, you know, when I don't like the way, whenever Max is talking to me about his stuff, he just, he just has this way of asking me for things that just rubs me the wrong way. Right. And so then I feel less motivated to fucking help Max out when he asks me like, well, just, I can sort of like, use my kind of executive function and just override that and just be like, look, like it's a, it's the mission. Max is quirky in this way, but we're going to get this done anyhow. And people do that all the time. And if you could find ways of like smoothing out those little rough spots or these little quirks of interaction, right? It would be better because we're ultimately humans in the same organization. And we're not going to stop being humans just because we're carrying out the functions of our roles, right? That doesn't go away. So this is meta relating is really the answer to that. And there are other answers to that in industry. Like, and, and I want to do a little historical backtrack here, like the HR idea, like this is human resources and, and all the functions that human resources take out. That has just grown and grown decade over decade. And if you rewound, to, you know, mid-century corporate America, mid-20th century, it was largely, you know, mostly male, mostly white, mostly Western, roughly Judeo-Christian, whatever you want to call what the mainstream culture was in, you know, the Eisenhower years. That was 
you could sort of rely in a way on these background norms. This is just this is the way we do things. This is the way we talk about things, right? And it's like, you know, the, the women are all secretaries, right? Like, or <laughs> and there's very few women who, in decision making places of power, and that's just the way we do things. And so long as that was the way everybody was doing things, and everyone was was fine with it to the degree that they were fine enough to do it together. That's just how it worked out. But the workplace has changed, right? The workplace has changed for a number of reasons. You could, the, the entire tendency of globalization is a part of that. The emergence of the internet is a part of that. Um, all the, even this, you know, our, our third dimension of, of information technologies and technologies that enable this to happen are a part of that. And you can't really go around just sort of making the same kind of presumptions. Or if you do, you might get up into trouble. Right. Like I, at, at Hewlett Packard, I worked in a very international organization. We had, you know, Indians and Singaporeans and Spaniards and, you know, regular old, you know, white middle American people and atheists and Christians and Muslims and whatever. We were all working together. Right. So it's it's a more diverse workplace in general, which actually means that we might step on each other's toes just by accident or inadvertently without recognizing how we're doing that. And that can create this kind of like static in our work dynamic. Do you see what I'm saying? Like this is, yeah, this is yeah. where we are today in the workplace. Well, so what do you say to people? So this is a, this is a great overview um, for the need, but it, 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 it is a lot when you're talking about institutions which is a very clearly identifiable rule in, in most instances. Yeah. Uh, that the, the institutional substrate is, is something like this person is a manager. This person is not sure. Right. And, uh, or this, uh, this person is responsible for this set of functions in holacracy. Yep. And that's the role understanding. And this is a kind of, uh, you know, the, there are policies and practices that get put into place through governance process and so on. And th those are really clear cut. Now we're entering the level of the human, the squishy, the, yes. the not, not so clear. And you know, what would you say to people who are just like, why don't you just tell people to be nice to each other and leave it at that? Like, is it really, uh, uh, is there really all this, you know, deep and sophisticated ways that people should interact with each other? And why, why not just, why not just make a, a simple admonition for people to be nice and respectful to each other. Well, I mean, this is, I mean, I'm just going to invoke the concept of cultural relativism here. I mean, this is why it's the fact of cultural relativism, not the philosophy. Of yeah. It. The fact of culture. Exactly. Yeah. This is yeah. why, I mean, you say be nice and go, okay, I'm going to be nice. I'm going to be nice the way that I know how to be nice. Right. And somebody else from a different culture of origin or family of origin, their version of being nice can just be a little different. It's like when you used to go to the 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 East Coast from the West. Your last name is Porcelli. You've got an Italian side of the family. Yeah. You go to the East Coast and they're like, "Hey, asshole, come in and get something to eat." Yeah, right. He called you an asshole, and yet <laughs> it's nice. he's inviting you to get something to eat <laughs> because he loves you. I love calling people assholes. You know, I love you if I call you asshole. Right, right. That kind of thing. Exactly. That is a cultural phenomenon that can break down in certain contexts. Absolutely. It, for me, I'm a Southerner. Mm -hmm. If I go in and I'll say, I'll say, hey, darling, to a woman. And in Atlanta, 
she might say, hey, darling, to me. Right. Because, and, you, and then if you go to California and do that, say, oh, my God, don't call me darling or sweetie. That is completely sexist, blah, blah, blah. Yeah. And I'm like, honey, I ain't sexist. I'm Southern. You know, but right. in the context of a, prof- in a professional setting, referring to someone as darling or sweetheart and having an adjudication process for that due to that cultural pluralism is is a profound need. And I, and I take it that matter relating helps. Yeah. Helps with some of those uh, issues. Yeah. Yeah. So, so here's, I'm going to, I'm going to contrast this with a couple of, I think you're totally right on. So, you know, in, in the, the, the world of HR, right. You, you, this is to oversimplify it, but you can say there's sort of, you know, the, the, the debate, right. That you the traditional people are kind of like, well, can't we just all sort of just do it the, the, the normal way or the way we used to do it? This is the sort of the conservatives, right? The just like, come on, just, you know, the the critique of that would be like, well, that's just a cultural blind spot of this kind of Western Eurocentric white blah culture, whatever we want to call that thing. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And then you kind of have the more woke ish, you know, progressive postmodern thing, which is well, and they and they go wrong, too. Right, well, they want to create another package, which is yes. Everyone, this is what we, this is what being nice means for everybody all the time. They're the diversity, equity, and inclusion bots, yes. right? They're like, like diversity, equity, inclusion, diversity, equity, inclusion. Repeat after me. If you deviate it from it all, you're a racist and we're going to run you out of the company. Like there's that kind of stuff that's going on yes. too. So you got the conservatives on the one hand, it's like, ah, oh, tough enough. Get a, get a thick skin. We just talk like this. It's, yeah. It's fun. It's innocent. Blah yeah. blah blah. Then you get the the wokies who are on the other end of the spectrum. So how does how does meta relating then adjudicate between these kind of camps, or how does it split the baby? <laughs> split the baby. Well, it's an attempt, and I you know, the proof is in the pudding. Yeah. I and I happen I happen to believe in a certain kind of uh, conversational protocols, you might say. And this is this is where meta-relating is actually very parallel to holacracy. And, and, and I want to just create another little point of contrast here. Look, in the holacracy world and all the companies that practice holacracy, there is a little bit sometimes of a an assumption that's like, cool, because we've handled the official institution part, who has the authority to decide what about what, that's all we need. And the culture shit can just handle itself. People will figure out the culture shit on their own. And some people in the holacracy world go, mm, you need to address culture stuff more head on. And other people are kind of like, nah, let's just do holacracy. So I, I happen to be in the first camp of like, you actually need to address this soft, squishy human stuff more head on and not just assume that like a holacracy supportive or compatible culture will just emerge just because you're doing holacracy. Sometimes it does, and sometimes it doesn't. And actually, there's there's a certain debate as to whether this is one of the factors as to why holacracy doesn't stick sometimes in organizations. If the culture just bounces it out because the c- culture rejects it. Do you see what I'm saying? But you've already said that inculcating culture is a bad idea. So if meta-relating is, is meant to address this, it's not inculcating culture, though, is it? What is it? What is it doing? It is partly, but partly not. But the, the ideal here is if you and I can get on the same page, not about all of the norms, but if you, we can get on the same page about like, what are the protocols by which we would establish the norms that we want or need? So the idea is, and that's why I call it meta-relating, is it's like a set of protocols for communicating with one or more people just about 
what's happening in your relational dynamic. And you can kind of come to make certain kinds of decisions together, right? You know, you might have a thing where she likes it when you call her darling in the workplace and you like calling her darling in the workplace. And she calls you darling back. All right, cool. But you could actually have a little mini meta relating moment where you're like, seems like you like it when I call you darling. She's like, oh, I love it. Cool. Will you please do that? No problem. Okay, great. And you have a thing where you're like, okay, I have now an explicit permission or consent, you might say, with this person to have this type of interaction with them. And the idea is if you give people the tool set where they can like take their attention and put it on these places that most often people don't really pay that much attention to um, or talk about explicitly and negotiate it in a custom way. We, it's not like we never talk about it. Oftentimes we talk about it almost uh, when we're kind of uh, having a laugh about like cultural differences. Oh, you pronounce it like this over there. We pronounce it like that over here. Or what is this saying in your culture? Oh, that's kind of cool. Oh, cool. Like, let me, let me see if I can like say it the right way. You know, this kind of a thing. Well, here's, here's, here's an actual example between you and me right now. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Is it, is it, uh, is meta relating what, what a good, what a, a decent example. If I'd come to you, if you'd come to me after the show and said, Hey man, I want to check in with you. I'm feeling a little bit uncomfortable about the cultural stereotypes sure. you use on the show. You yeah. talking to me, right? Cause I've done that a couple of times. I did an Italian. I did a, I've done a, a, you know, um, something else. I can't remember, but anyway, what's it's happened a couple of times and I, I love to do it. I love to just sure. sort of, yep. uh, as yep. the British say, take the piss a little bit cause it's fun, but it can be offensive to people. So let's say that after the show you had, you know, you, you were like, okay, Max, um, I don't want to alienate folks. And I just want to check in with you about this point. I'm feeling a little uncomfortable about your use of, you know, stereotype language or whatever, even in fun on this show. Cause I really want to restrict it to, um, you know, to the topic of human social evolution, right? Which is the name of the show. And, and I, and then at that point I can respond and I can sort of say, Hey, you know, um, you know, I felt that it added value, but you know, you may be right. Should we market test it? Should we just scuttle yeah. this episode? And we have this conversation about it. Is that is and, and and creating a creating an environment where you know you're supposed to address people about things that are uncomfortable or just not working, or even in a holocratic sense, processing attention that is more interpersonal, right? Or or whatever. Is that getting there? You're totally kind of getting there. Yeah. Like yes. that's, that, that's the simple answer. I'm going to give okay. you a little more nuance here, but, but yeah, like if we, and we don't have this, but let's say you hear it, social evolution podcast, we decide we're going to use meta relating as our way of dealing with interpersonal issues between you and me, Max. What's really okay. cool is it's very, it's very analogous. Like, Oh, we point to the holacracy constitution and say, this is how we decide who decides what. You can just point to the meta relating and there's like a set of protocols in meta relating. It's finite. There's like six different types of protocols basically yeah. to address yeah. any interpersonal dynamic. Uh, that's my claim. And it's, it's pretty, I'm pretty confident in that claim. Give me an example of one, give the, the listeners example of one. Okay. One of those protocols. Um, it would be, uh, I want to clear the air about something that happened between the two of us. You said or did something, and I had an experience. I had an interpretation. I want you to know what my experience and interpretation was, and I also want to know what 
was going on for you when that happened. Okay. And that's a whole process. Yeah. And then we get shared reality about what happened. Right. Now I know more about what was going on in your internal state, what your intention was, what your experience was when that happened. And. Oh my God, Porch, my girlfriend and I have learned to do this with each other. My baby mama. Right. Yeah. So we're not married yet. We probably will get married, but you know, like all couples, we're going to have conflicts. We're going to have disagreements. And it's so interesting that we have evolved this, this conversation, this, this after the fact conversation of like, how did you view this? How did I view that? Oh, I see why you got upset now because I viewed it in a completely different light in the way you interpreted this statement and the way I interpreted this statement cause it to become inflamed unnecessarily, but I should be more, perhaps more careful about my words. I mean, yes, it's really, it's really useful for couples then. Couldn't it be? Oh, oh yeah. Yeah. No, this, this stuff is like straight out of like good, healthy couples, communication, couples counseling kind of stuff. Yeah. It's totally, it's totally compatible. Oh, that's, that's really cool. I, I didn't know that. Yeah. So, so if you take this, if we said, Hey, our culture at this organization, the social evolution podcast is better relating now. And we agree deal max. All right, deal. Let's just say we did that. Now I know that, you know, that if I did have a thing about how you're making cultural stereotypes on this, you would, you would be like, Oh, well, I believe that if porch has a problem with it, he's going to, he's going to do the clear the air process with me. Do you see what I'm saying? Yeah. Yeah. It's, and it's sort of like, oh, I can rely on that. You're not relying on you and I see eye to eye about like which cultural stereotyping is okay and which cultural stereotyping is not as though we're going to create, and this is, this is where I think some diversity, equity, inclusion efforts go off because they try to, you know, essentially sort out like what the current best version is. And this, and this is why there's like constant infighting amongst progressives about like, well, what's the, whose, whose level of oppression out oppresses other, <laughs> the other level of oppression. I don't mean to laugh. So you it's... know which group has to be deferential to what group under what circumstances, right? And it's like, well, you can just infinitely parse this. And, you know, the, the truth is like, it's new languages invented every day. And to keep up with whatever the latest breaking version of saying it right is, is impossible. It's, it's, it's a hierarchy of victimhood. It can be, it can be in its worst case. Yeah. 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 But it's, it's a, it's a, it's a solution. Maybe it's a a mediocre or bad solution at times to a real problem, which is we come from different backgrounds. We come from different origins. We come from different families. We come from different religions. And sometimes shit is going to happen where we're kind of like, we just step on each other's toes somehow. And what do you do about that? And one answer is you don't do anything about that. You just suck it up and go after the mission. Right. But if you just sweep enough things under the rug over and over again with people, you build up. You can think about it as like static or you can think about it as like a, in programming, there's this idea of like technical debt. It's kind of like you got to go back and clean up your code sometimes because it's sort of kludged together or organizational debt. Oh, you got to reorg the company because we've been kind of like working around, you know, meta relating is a way of addressing what I call relational debt where it's like, look, we, we've kind of actually accrued this sort of baggage it's kind of there you know sort of dangling you know if there's a relationship between you and me it's for this weight that's sort of dangling there between us they like well if we dove into it and addressed it we could potentially like 
just be free of that weight or catalyze it into a new way of interacting. And that's better than just not addressing it at all. The other way of addressing these kinds of things is doing the top-down imposition of this is how we do culture now. And if you're if you're just trading a top-down imposition of culture for an implicit, you know, the way we used to always do it, good old boy network thing, and you're trying to say like, cool, you know, and this is this is what the latest trend in diversity, equity, inclusion says we should be doing with each other. Let's just do that, right? Like you're kind of imposing a thing that everyone now has to like scramble like to be educated on what it is. And 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 it's it's almost like a, a re-education camps or deprogramming. It can be the, their culture in order to be able to function rather than to have it. It's almost like it sounds like to me anyway, that meta relating is a decentralized set of protocols for interpersonal uh, relationships that allow you to discuss discovery process from person to person that you work with. Yes, absolutely. That's exactly what it does. Well, that's, that's really beautiful. Um, and, 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 you know, like I was saying earlier, you know, my, my, my girlfriend and I made up our own rules for this. It sound very similar, but like people who are having relationship problems, either at work or at home could go pick up some of these, these rules of thumb from meta relating and really do some serious healing, huh? I think so. You know, this is, this is like there, you know, there's a concept in the personal growth world, which is where meta relating comes from is, is like relationships. If you want them to be, can be an opportunity to grow and learn as a person, right? Like, you know, and I don't know about you, but I, I do hold, you know, intimate relationships as a sacred thing and, and even friendships as a sacred thing. And it's like, yeah, you know, we can learn from each other. We get sort of up in each other's business. You know, we can <laughs> challenge each other, right? We can right. point out like, you know, it might be a thing like you're not going to hear it from, you know, just everyday people, you know, but but I'm your bro and I care about you. And I'm being like, Max, this thing, I don't know. Are you aware of this thing that you sort of do? And do you, do you imagine that this is maybe having this kind of an, I can be super honest with you, right? Like. And that ability for us, and you don't have to take my word for it. You don't even have to do what I'm suggesting. I might not even be suggesting a thing. You might be, no, I'm aware of that. And that's what I'm choosing to do anyway. Or you might be, I had no fucking idea. Thanks for being, it's like having a booger hanging out of your nose. And your friend goes, you have a booger hanging out of your nose, right? Like, yeah. I want to hear that from my trusted circle. Well, I want and, 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 you know, so I, I, I don't, I don't really feel comfortable with the, you know, sort of typecasting the two sides, but in the old order, the old, the, the, traditional or conservative if you like yeah. view of this stuff um it's either uh you'll get over it or sweep it under the rug or allow people to continue to be mistreated because the hierarchy somehow tacitly dictates that that's right right yep. mm -hmm. and that's where you get the old boy network that's where you get women being treated like shit probably minorities too yep uh you know uh, well no, no certainly minorities too yep and then the, the sort of reaction to that is is this sort of the wokey sensibility where it's deprogramming and finding finding some sort of uh, you know affront to social justice everywhere and and dismantling the X root and branch which requires everybody almost abandon their culture their humanity their background and and edit themselves to the point that that kind of concourse, that kind of 
um, uh, what's the word? Um, uh, just exchange of ideas and emotions between two people can't really honestly or authentically take place with either side, with either of these approaches. Yes. But with meta-relating, it allows people to form shared reality despite the differences. Yes. And that's really an interesting and beautiful thing. It's a very sort of cosmopolitan liberal outlook applied to organizations. And I, and I really love that. Yeah, I, I think it is. And I, my, my hope is that it really does serve that kind of thing. And, and I think maybe we could do a little history thing here. Like I, you know, I, well, let's not forget we have technology to go now. Oh shit. Okay. Let's maybe, maybe there's like a little brief comment there to say like, you know, the, the norms of the market developed in certain cultures, specifically the Dutch and the English. Right. And, you know, some conservatives will say, you know, that, uh, modern liberal norms politically and market norms kind of developed out of the pre-existing Christian Greco-Roman norms of European culture. Right. And now we're trying to like, export those things but those things are kind of like packaged in there as like implicit cultural assumptions and i think this is where you know where some of that kind of like nation building that the west sometimes tries to do doesn't work yeah right like but meta-relating and this is me not trying to say meta-relating as like a political initiative or, or international relations approach but it is true a lot of stuff in like really good diplomacy and really good uh negotiations, peacemaking, uh, truth and reconciliation, things that happen in war-torn areas, they all have very similar, you'll recognize the principles of those kinds of protocols are basically the same as what happens in meta-relating, restorative justice protocols. These kinds of things are basically the same thing as, as what we have in meta-relating, which is like, you gotta put it out on the table. And I might discover, oh, when I say it this way, you're offended, and I don't want to offend you, so I'm not going to say it that way. I might end up negotiating an agreement where I agree to edit myself in a certain way at a certain time with a certain person or group of people because I want to. But at least I'm voluntarily choosing to do that. I might end up getting the same result as the kind of imposed diversity initiative tells me to do, right? But I'm co-creating that in relationship with the people that I'm actually working with, not trying to import it from some lawyers who hired a consultant. It, it comes from within. Yes. It's, it's almost like when it's the difference between when people, uh, and I, I don't, I don't want to be too political here, but it's like when people talk about the compassionate societies, yeah. you know, uh, such and such is a more compassionate society. It's, it's, and they usually mean that there is a high level of taxation and most of that taxed money goes to welfare state to make sure that the least advantaged in society are taken care of, that there's a social safety net. But there is nothing literally compassionate about that. Like literal compassion comes from actual acts of a person, a human being making a choice to give of themselves to aid another person. And that is a very different thing from outsourcing that responsibility to a distant capital in the hopes that they rain largesse down on the poor and they're taken care of. It's not to say that all these social systems are broken, but it, you can't call that true compassion. Yep. And likewise, if I have to edit out my uh, certain kinds of language or this or that, that I'm using in a, a certain kind of way with someone who takes offense at it, 
my my engaging in the meta-relating process through these rules, it sounds like, will allow me to come to seeing this human, this other human being empathically. Yes. And me allowing me to make the decision to come to a a middle ground, a compromise, a place of peace that we agreed to together. It's a product of consent and negotiation, not yes. as not compelled or or imposed from the top down. That's right. And that makes it a part of our, of our actual human spirit when we do it. Yes, absolutely. Yeah, it's in the spirit of voluntary choice. It's in the spirit of consent. And yeah, let's, let's, let's put a period on that. And what do we have to say about the technology dimension? Because I mean, in some senses, this could be very brief because people kind of get it, right? It's like, you know, the internet and telephones and databases and information technology. But like, there is something here about a couple of things. One is all of these tools are what's enabling us to have a more diverse workforce, right? Like coordinating across time zones. I mean, people on little dinky teams of three or four people now are coordinating internationally. It's kind of wild. That's happening all the time now. Zoom calls or we, we track our projects in Asana or Trello or whatever, you know, um, which is partly what necessitates some of this cultural thing that we're talking about. Uh, and then secondly, the thing you were saying earlier, when we create more efficiencies through these technological innovations, we decrease the transaction costs, which sort of I don't know if that's going to like decrease the gigantism or it sort of makes the average company size need is can go down because these platforms are providing more kind of automation there. I'm kind of curious where, where you want to go with this in terms of the technology and the interaction with the other two. Look, um, a lot of this is intermediaries, um, mm -hmm. blockchains, um, distributed ledgers, cryptocurrencies have this feature of disintermediation. So it eliminates certain kinds of middlemen, as it mm -hmm. were. It, be, it lowers the cost of contracting with with people in different geographies. You know, there are certain things that I can put on Fiverr or Upwork or, th you know, the jobs like that to get done. I don't have to bring someone in-house. And then those people can just, you know, spend their day finding people who, like me, need a certain kind of very specific specialized job done, like formatting a book or doing a bit of graphic design or something like that without having to pull someone in-house which contributes to the gigantism yeah um so right now what we're seeing is this this transitional state where we have a hybrid a lot of firms are able to to stay lean by jobbing out so many of the different functions and persist uh in in their leanness and grow based on their comparative advantage where you need someone's time and attention on certain things all the time. Right. But we're seeing, we're seeing organizations form like, I mean, look at the Bitcoin development ecosystem. Mm -hmm. There's nobody running that. Yeah. They're just a group of de developers who have really good rules and, 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 and mechanisms for, as it were, forking the code. And it's not even as it were with Bitcoin, they literally forked the code to create BCH Bitcoin cash. And, um, uh, BSV, which is uh, Satoshi Vision, they all had different theories about how this ought to run. And the way they resolved the conflict is like, I'm going to go over here and try it with my system. Yeah. There was no war. 
There's no internecine conflict. There's no imposition of one theory upon the other. They took their different routes, and now we have three different kinds of Bitcoin. One still prevails uh, at, by virtue of market cap, but it could be that tomorrow either BCH or BSV is ascendant or Ethereum or this or that, where this in this um, we where you can coordinate at scale without authority authorities or middlemen is a massive massive transformation that is unfolding before our very eyes. It's not to say that the corporate form will always go away. We may always need some manner of, you know, corporation or people are in the same space. Everybody comes to work. We may, for certain kinds of things, like running a factory, say, you might need that to persist in time. But more and more as we get into the information economy and the the transaction costs of forming market makers and market takers is reduced, we will start to see these very different kind of arrangements of people uh, to, to create revenue and access the cost and realize a mission. And that, that mission thing really is the key. So let me, if you don't mind, I want to talk about Cosmos and Taxis. Um, is, and, and how a technology applies can to you, that. Can you hold that thought real quick and come back to that in a second? Yeah, yes, yes. Yeah. Go, go, so, go ahead. So I think what I'm getting here and and is, you know, we, we kind of like leapt straight to the future in technology. But like what we're talking about, there's an analog here. Like the old management hierarchy is to holacracy or this kind of like old boy network way of doing culture or is to meta-relating. And now kind of like maybe this old way of doing corporate IT or something is to these kind of new Bitcoin or decentralized or disintermediated platforms. Like there, there is a way that these are all kind of pointing in the same direction together in, into the future, right? You, you might say like the, lo the lowering of transaction costs, the ability to kind of coordinate efforts maybe in a more agile way it, it it almost like it, my mind just can't help going to like it's just a lot more diversity in organization types right like yes smaller teams really able to like spin up quickly and pursue a particular market value add thing like like this and like that that's where we're headed because in a sense all of the the benefits of gigantism, right? Corporate bureaucracies or state bureaucracies or let's say giant information systems like Oracle databases and shit like that. Those used to come at a huge premium. You had to be large in order to be able to afford the kind of technological infrastructure. You get these kind of economies of scale efficiencies that have these things get bigger and bigger and bigger. But now the cost of those things themselves are going down and then the ability to coordinate and the transaction cost of coordinating is also going down. Even the client server model where you have a bunch of yeah. servers sitting in a room and somebody owns them, even that is going away. I mean, Amazon, people don't realize that Amazon is, a, right. exactly. is one of the biggest companies in the world, not because it pumps out tube socks and laundry baskets every day to everybody in the country, although that is also true. Amazon Web Services is a is a just a monster. They control so much of the market. And Amazon Web Services is basically server space and, and associated services around servers. But even that with a decentralized internet, once we're gonna to start to see at the layer of the technology stack, the client server model is gonna to start to go away. Yes. Especially as computing, personal computing power goes up, 
people don't use their computing power when it's you know lying fallow when they're sleeping or whatever and you're you're belonging to a giant network of computers that can be harnessed in real time together yes. this decentralized internet is going to destroy the client server model eventually and that is real it's radical that level of coordination and exchange is really goes back to that cosian point about transaction costs that's right that's right so let me hear about cosmos and taxes you have this thing you wanted to talk well, about well so if you think about one of the things that, that you know friedrich hayek talked about is he, he made this distinction and he was very stark in his mind uh friedrich hayek is an economist political theorist uh in the 20th century who's really ahead of the game in terms of complex systems, understanding the nature of complex systems. Mm -hmm. He gave us this idea of spontaneous or emergent order. He was the first person to coin that term, spontaneous order, at least as far as we can tell. And he he had gotten that from Adam Smith and, and um, um, Smith's teacher, whose name escapes me. Um, but anyway, but it, it is this idea that you can get uh, this overall order without planning or design, and that's called emergent order. Yes. yes. Now, what he's talking about is complex economies or emergent orders. They cannot be planned. And of course, he's operating in the middle of the 20th century when European countries were trying to plan economies and, you know, eventually failing at it. Uh, it was either fascism or communism, both of which are forms of planned economies, and they they were unsuccessful in time. And there are scaling reasons for that that complexity scientists can describe. It's really interesting. Or you can read about it in my book, After Collapse. <laughs> but anyway, Hayek basically said you have these orders that are cosmos, which is the extended order, the, the emergent order, and that that really can't be planned or designed because knowledge is distributed to too many minds in society for any one mind to be able to make the appropriate plans it would fry their neural circuitry. And he's right. right. Yep. And so instead, what they try to do is plan the economy and steamroll over all of these emergent efforts, the shoots of possibility. Okay. That's what mm -hmm. planned economies do is they steamroll over everything and, and create a basically like a, a monoculture or a mono yep. monolith. Um, but you get the idea of cosmos being the emergent order. Then you have the planned order, which is the taxes, where you have managers, and who form these little fiefdoms, these 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 carrot dictatorships uh, that are managed hierarchies, and that's because they operate on local knowledge. You have the sufficient knowledge to be able to make the requisite decisions for them to 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 be created and to scale to some degree, but they are they are not the same as society. And what distinguishes them, according to Hayek, is this idea of of telos or a teleological state of affairs with a planned a planned organization you have a mission that is the telos mm -hmm. put shoes on feet right uh right. serve serve customers uh well through doing their taxes whatever the hell your mission is as a company yep um and then with the extended order there is no overall mission there is no mission to to a society it is it is a concatenation of millions, if not billions of different missions. Sure. Even if those missions are represented by smaller organi organizations, uh, it is an ecosystem of pluralism in missions, right? Yep. So that's the general distinction. But what's interesting about holacracy and meta-relating and technological solutions is that it allows the lines between 
Taxis and Cosmos to blur together because all of a sudden we can self-organize according to missions but look more like emergent orders. And that is fascinating. Yeah. Even Holacracy functions better because they use Glass Frog, which is some software that allows coordination yeah. among the units in the firm or in the organization. Right. So technologic te technological solutions help holacracy along it is also a good social technology in that you don't need you don't need tech tech to run holacracy but it sure as hell helps and all of these technological processes that allow people to collaborate and exchange in more and more in real time reduce transaction costs and make for firms that don't necessarily need to be the kind of 1930s firm the taylorite firm the management hierarchy that we used to see in that era Yep. Cool. So I want to start moving us to a conclusion here. I, I think I love that vision. You and I share this vision. You know, I have this author named Frederick Lou wrote about this idea of the, the teal organization and kind of used some of the spiral dynamics, um, color coding to kind of talk about the evolution of organizations. And if you haven't read that, I recommend that book. And, you know, he presents a certain version of what a teal organization is. And I think Max and I are presenting potentially other versions of that but but this idea that society is evolving which is the theme of our whole podcast and focusing in on organizations and actually to see how in these dimensions of institution culture and technology organizations have changed over time and right now today are in the middle of transforming in several different ways along all these kinds of dimensions like self-management systems not just holacracy but others like it are increasingly being adopted and these technological pl platforms are, you know, whether they're the client server model in software as a service or more decentralized models like crypto smart contracts, those are being increasingly deployed and, uh, cultural types of interventions like meta relating are coming online as well to deal with the human to human issues. Like this, these are all headed in a similar direction. And I think it's really going to transform what it means to be working in the workplace of the future. And I think that in and of itself is a form of social change. We don't have to kind of get all, you know, politically activistic to think of like <laughs> social change in terms of some high moral aspiration. We can actually talk about social change in this more incremental agile way that gives people more sovereignty over their day-to-day -day lives and how they choose to spend their time and how they choose to spend their money. And that to me in and of itself is liberating for more people, right? It's more autonomy. It's more freedom. It's more ability to cooperate and make things happen in a dynamic way. I mean, there's a lot of things well, you can say about and it. This is a great, a great point on which to close, I think. And that is to re remember that all of the dynamics of the model we set out at the beginning and in the first episode, institutions, culture, technology, nature, and human nature are all inextricably bound up and blurred together. They all affect the others. When you have a technology like uh, a distributed ledger and the capabilities of smart contracts and collaboration at scale that's more and more being deployed, you get 
you can get culture built around that. You start getting people who are really advocates of this because they see how punishing and how limiting it is to have to work in a, in a management hierarchy where your boss is an asshole. Yep. And of course, there are people leaving Silicon Valley in droves from these big old corporations to operate in this new ecosystem, mm -hmm. and they are culturally really into it. Hoddle culture, for example, is a cultural yep. phenomenon that may or may not be based on the value of Bitcoin, but just as much about ideology and change as anything else. And likewise, the culture of innovation that this engenders it propagates new technologies and new institutions. Well, how can you propagate an institution with technology? Well, it's really simple, folks, because when you have a technological change, when you have a tool that builds a new rule and people start following that rule through consent, you are creating institutional change through That's code. Right. And That's this right. is the this is the essence of the social singularity. This is the essence of what's coming in in the coming generation, unless the the powers that be get really authoritarian really fast. And we'll see about that. And that's a great note to end on, Max. It's been a real pleasure. Thank you for rejoining us here for the social evolution podcast with max borders and michael porcelli and please join us again in the future for more conversations like this one bye y'all